This episode of the Tome Show is brought to you by Dice Envy for curated, unique dice. Noble Knight, where out of print is available again, and listeners like you, thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links, and for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to like me. Welcome to the Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 307, we're going to ride the lightning rails to fun as we review the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron. And we have a great panel with us tonight. The first person joining us for this fantastic team is the monstrous ecologist, Jeremiah McCoy. Welcome back, sir. Hello! And also, we have Quinn Murphy, who you recently heard on our review of the Hero's Handbook. Welcome back, Quinn. Hey, hey. Good to be back. It is good to have you both here with us today. And in fact, I think, Quinn, the last time you were on, uh, Jeremiah, you were on that episode too, weren't you? Yeah. Yep. So if you you guys don't know each other, uh, we're going to make sure that you become the best of friends. (laughs) I, I uh, look forward to um, when we when you get around to doing the Ravnica uh, review. Uh, review Quinn has to be on because I, I must. Yeah, I will, I will. I will. I will definitely plant a seat on there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, <laughs> oh, no reason. Quinn, Quinn, Quinn uh, knows a thing or two about magic. I, I understand. That's my understanding too. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I am a fellow player as well, though not as knowledgeable as Quinn. Awesome. Uh, so tonight we're going to be reviewing the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron. It's a living document for $20. You can buy the PDF on DM's Guild and you get about 170 pages of content. Uh, they made it clear that it's not finished yet. They'll be tweaking things, adding things as time goes on. So we'll be looking at this first version that hasn't been edited at all yet. Uh, we may come back and give it another look down the road when the product seems more finished, if people would like us to. So if you want to hear that, if you want us to, uh, you know, a year down the road or so, if when this thing is more solid and done, uh, to look at it again and, and sort of see how it's changed over time, let us know. The Tome Show at gmail.com is where you can reach out. Uh, before we get into that, though, I want to thank our sponsors. Our first sponsor is DiceEnvy.com, uh, who've, and they're very supportive of us. Uh, they are a dice seller with very unique offerings. They have subscription services, so you can get new, carefully curated dice sent to you once a month in the mail, constantly adding to your collection. I've mentioned in previous uh, ads for them that they, they have one level where you just can sort of test it out and get one die a month. Uh, I've also mentioned the high end where you get a, a whole set of dice made from special materials like metal or wood. Uh, but if you want to go right down the middle, they have an offering for that as well. You can get a unique set of dice every month from their, their from standard materials but with standout sort of designs. It's about $12 a month. Check them out at DiceNV.com and let them know that the Tome Show sent you. There are a lot of subscription services out there that deliver things right to your door these days. Veggies, movies, meat, pet toys, artisanal jams, collectibles, RPGs, pictures of cool places, music, butter, dice. Wait, what? 
There is literally only one thing on that list that would make my life complete. A monthly subscription service for DICE? DICE Envy has subscription services for DICE. They send you a unique set every single month right to your house. Go check out their subscriptions. Or if you just want to go buy some of their unique and interesting DICE, head over to DiceEnvy.com and let them know that the Tome Show sent you. Also supporting us is our longest-running sponsor, Noble Knight. They specialize in finding out-of-print products, and that's perfect for this episode. Want to find all the lore and details from previous editions of Eberron? Noble Knight can offer them. The lore hasn't changed over the edition since Eberron was introduced in 3rd edition. Uh, so in this episode, we recommend the 40 Eberron campaign guide. It's full of everything you need to know to run a game in Eberron and has evolved since the first edition release of 3E. Plus, it's only $20 to $25. Check it out, and if you do buy this or anything else from Noble Knight, be sure to let them know the Tome Show sent you. Support for the Tome Show comes from Noble Knight. From Noble Knight. Noble Knight? Knight. Knight? Thousands of tabletop gamers use a Noble Knight to sell new and out-of-print games and products at a discounted price. Noble Knight will also buy back the game products you aren't using anymore. NobleKnight.com, the brick-and-mortar online store where out-of-print is available again. Tell them the Tome Show sent you. I use Noble Knight. You do? I love it. Trying to sound creepy there. All right, and we are now back, and it is time to talk Eberron, the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron. Uh, let's start off. Uh, Jeremiah, what is yes. this book about? So, Eberron is a fantasy setting, not unlike Forgotten Realms or Dragonlance or, uh, you know, uh, Greyhawk or what have you. Uh, but in some was- ways, very much unlike them. In some ways, very unlike those settings. Um, it is... Uh, one way of thinking of it is all the stuff that you love in D&D, the stuff that you are familiar with in D&D, still have a place here. It's just they put a different spin on the explanation of the world, and it changes how you deal with the world. And um, so it is... Uh, magic as technology. It's our pulp action adventure. It's more noir. Um, it removes a lot of the uh, embedded uh, assumptions in fantasy settings about monstrous, uh, monstrous in quotation marks, races such as orcs. They are no longer just like the children of an evil god. They actually have a noble background. Um, the, the same with the drow and some of the others, the, uh, hobgoblins had a, a, a vast empire and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a different background than what you would expect for a lot of the monsters. You have, uh, a, a, a much more urbane society with a lot more traffic back and forth with magic as technology, giving you lightning rails, airships, and so on. So the society is different, but you still have these vast, you know, realms of unexplored ruins and all of the usual D and D trappings. It's just got this extra layer that you can play with. Mm, Yeah. It's sort of, and you mentioned the, the, the pulp sort of angle to it as well. And I think that's an important element of this is the type of story that one tells in Eberron. It's, it's the, the crazy over the top, like you're in a flying air airship and it's going down. And that's the, that's the scene. That's the setting for the, the combat encounter. Right. Uh, So, 
So it's it's that kind of craziness. It's kind of uh, imagine your your typical D and D fantasy in some ways, but uh, located instead of being um, situated in sort of a pseudo medieval period, situated in a in a post World War One pre World War Two period um, sort of thing going on there, right? I I would go more Victorian uh, tech wise, but yeah. But, but I mean the 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 story of the setting uh, and the tensions that exist and the politics of it and whatever is very much inspired by World War One, World War Two. Sure, it's uh, or the Hundred Year War, as the last war is in fact a hundred years of war. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think of I always think of Eberron as kind of like the mega gestalt okay. kind of setting, where it's like it's like the you know it's it's kind of it's it's. Wait, you know, it's a, it's a it's sort of a grab bag, but with more like coherence than you normally get out of such mm. a thing, right? Um, where it's just like, you know, and, and they sort of explain it in their kind of opening. It's like, hey, like anything can fit in here, but then they sort of use enough kind of evocative kind of uh, sort of pinnings at the core and on the boundaries that everything not only think everything could fit in there but everything can make sense mm. as long as it's kind of like aligned in some of these uh i i think probably the best place to start with explaining eberron to people when i've tried to in the past is start with a base fantasy setting uh all of forgotten realms greyhawk what have you and then add stuff um mm-hmm. because all of all of the the basis, you know, things that you're familiar with are there. It's just you can add things like magic as technology, so you have lightning rails and services to send messages between cities and uh, elemental bound flying ships are a fairly common means of transport. Um, uh, you you know you're adding things like the dragon marked houses and things like that. You can still do all the other stuff that you like. You could take any of the adventures that they've already released and with just a little bit of uh, uh, jiggery pokery as uh, the doctor might say to uh, uh, transform them into being Eberron adventures they Mm. still can fit there yeah, I mean, there's a little bit more work on some of the adventures because of the way Eberron works with with gods and with planes and that kind of stuff. But the the this book actually addresses that, and there's little sidebars of hey, if you want to do a you know out of the abyss sort of style of game, or if you want to deal with Tiamat or whatever, like here are some ways that you can make that work without like blowing up the the constraints that already exist in Eberron. Uh, I usually like to introduce Eberron to people. Um, a little differently than that, uh, Jeremiah. I usually like to start with some of the lore um, and, and start with the idea of, you know, the last war has just happened. They, the, the kingdom of Galifar broke up. There was this big sort of secession war between the five big empires. Um, and then it ended basically when one of them, something went wrong and one of them blew themselves up, right? And that becomes the Mornland. And it's sort of... Um, to, to go to the World War One World War Two analogy that I always go to, especially because of the pulpy, pulpiness of it, right, which fits into that era, um, it's it's the nuke, right? Somebody somebody dropped a nuclear bomb and destroyed one of the kingdoms, and everybody else decided, hey, we should probably stop killing each other because that was hardcore. And then you add in the dragon-marked houses, which sort of function as um, non-governmental megacorps uh, in some ways. Like they're this, these large merchant 
sort of corporations that exist throughout all the different you know kingdoms and whatever of Eberron, uh, running different styles of, of uh, commerce and whatever, but they're doing it through a magical domination. Uh, that uh, that's certainly a valid description. Um, I think the the Mornland disaster would be. You you should probably add the proviso. Uh, it's like somebody dropped a nuke, but you don't know who. Yeah, you don't know who you don't, and you don't know that it was a nuke. You just know that that there, there used to be a kingdom there, and now there's not. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know we haven't ta- talked about it yet, but one thing too to talk about in terms of Ebron is its history outside of the lore, mm-hmm. um, which is that it was during a search for a new campaign setting, uh, Keith Baker uh, created this and pitched it, uh, and it was selected, and then I think it went through like a, over a year process with folks from Wizards of the Coast uh, going through and really strengthening it, and I think that's part of the, maybe part of the reason why there's a little bit of that kitchen sink in there. Well, and that's an interesting... Like- when I think of a kitchen sink set, sink setting, Eberron is not actually the kitchen sink setting I think of because that's sort of what Forgotten Realms tries to be. Is just sort of it's such a right. massive world and there's everything somewhere in this massive world, right? Uh, whereas Eberron, in many ways, is sort of the it's all there, but it's it, but it's all part of one thing and it kind of makes sense. And then and then we're gonna throw on weird things that aren't anywhere else in D anD D like Warforged or Shifters or. Um, the the Dale Care the the shift uh, the 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 psionic sort of Im, uh, invasion that's happening elsewhere in the world and all the and all these extra things on top of see, it. See, I I see the Forgotten Realm. So I, so I see like I see like Eberron and Forgotten Realms both playing the role, but in different ways. Like yeah. like I've always felt like Forgotten Realms was kind of like this is a platform for like anything like ultimately you want to find mm-hmm. and kind of do like. Forgotten Realms has some, you know, it's this big, vast kind of world with these different slices and, like, different parts of the world are, like, open to different, like, kind of, like, campaign styles and genre and, mm-hmm. and stuff. It, it doesn't, it, 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 it makes itself open by not providing, like, one overcast style on the world. Mm-hmm. Where Eberron, pretty much anywhere you go in Eberron, there's these, like, you know, we've talked about the pulp kind of, like, noir mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like, everywhere you go in Eberron, that is there. Mm-hmm. But every and so everything, but and and you and and they're like, hey, and and they make such kind of evocative kind of twists on the setting, and and they invite you to go put stuff into it, but tweak it so. And, and Dark Sun does, uh, it's more restrictive, but it does a similar thing. Like, hey, if you want to make a, you know, if you want to bring in uh, some crazy X Y Z, sure, as long as it's going to fit into like a post apocalyptic fantasy setting right and Eberron mm. does the same thing except it, it encourages more stuff and says hey if you're going to fit into a pulp neo noir you know come and take your crazy thing and twist it to this end yeah i think right. i would argue that dark sun sort of says um here are the restrictions and you have to force everything to fit into those restrictions whereas Eberron is much more as you say it's much more uh permissive and less, and less right. restrictive of, of saying look here's the genre and you can make anything fit into the genre not just you can play anything that does fit into the genre you can make anything fit into the genre yeah hey. oops sorry no no by all means i was gonna say just the, the one thing that's kind of weird in terms of uh to me and this may just be i haven't 
uh, had quite as much experience because I wasn't a third edition player, where I think a lot of Eberron stuff really mm. came out, um, is the whole description about magic. Because we kind of said, like, uh, you know, it's a very magical place, but mm-hmm. it's a lot of low-level magic. Yeah. So, like, even non-magic classes, like... Mm-hmm. Characters right. can still have some amount of magic, but the like high level magic that you might really think of in terms of the holy crap stuff <laughs> mm-hmm. from D and D isn't meant to be there that much. Like, oh, 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 sorry, sorry. Oh no, go ahead. Oh, well, one advantage I think that that Eberron has now, sort of like to bring it out now, is that uh, like Eber- like when I think of Eberron now and like that kind of that constant. So, like you know, sort of totally infused into the world, like magic. Like every other person's, like you know, doing magic, like small magic cantrips here and there. Mm. Is it makes me think of um, the Harry Potter movies, and not that it is the same kind of visual, no, but no. like one of the things I like about the uh, Harry Potter thing, seeing them, is it shows this very realized world where magic is like real and everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it provides a good sort of reference of what that would be like, and then. Um, in an in Eberron, like I, I think that kind of that it's being there sort of serves as a subconscious kind of touch point. Yeah, there was a de- there was a description in this book that I liked for the magic, and that um, that I, I don't know that I'd seen before. It's very possible it was there, and I've just forgotten over the years. Uh, describing it as as wide but shallow, right? That there's a lot of magic, but it doesn't go super deep. There's not like you know, there's not a bunch of Elminsters running around or chosen of Mister running around, you know, uh, fl- flinging uh, you know high magic around all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, I think part of the magical conceit here is also a product of third edition uh, and three point five more specifically. Um, three point five had very clear well-spelled-out rules for making making magic items. Mm -hmm. They had very clear spelled-out rules of how many magic items the DM should be uh, putting out, Mm -hmm. and, uh, like, here's what they should cost, and this is where you can find them, and it was very clear. (laughs) And that, that serves you making a notion of magic as technology makes sense there are clear rules magic in uh in eberron follows clear rules it's not fuzzy um and so they can know reliably well if i bind elementals to this ring and i attach it to that ship i can use it to fly the ship Mm -hmm. they know how the technology of that magic works it's not as mysterious Mm -hmm. the big magic the big scary magic that pcs can learn uh is lost and forgotten they have records of it they have legends they know that the giants had it and the dragons have it and things like that but the general guys don't have access to it but the low level magic is just as reliable as science right and there's sort of a magic by by way of sort of industrialization um, in Eberron, I think. Yeah. So anyway, we spent a lot of time sort of introducing what Eberron is, mm-hmm. uh, but not really talking much about the what this book is uh, at this point. Mm-hmm. So it, it sort of serves as a fifth edition sort of uh, mm-hmm. uh, update to Eberron. It's it's sort of a, a mm-hmm. quick, easy primer, and then getting into and here's the mechanics you need to make the the primer work. 
Right. Um, I, I, I have to say, like, there, there I think, uh, and we can delve into this uh, throughout as we talk about it, but they were talking about this as a living document. They're like, wait, there's more. And I'm, uh, and I'm kind of afraid because I feel in a lot of ways this is actually for what I feel like setting books sh- should actually be. The, this 170 page thing? Yeah, near perfect, actually. Like, there's, like, actually, like, mm. I'm afraid that the stuff that will get filled in, and, and we, we can cover it in the different parts, but I feel like if they fill in the things that normally kind of get filled in, I will be like, I'll be sad, right? Like, I, there are parts I want them to extend, but not the typical ones. There there okay. are a few things that are just not here that are core assumptions mm-hmm. in the classic Eberron setting, specifically psionics mm-hmm. and um, uh, 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 oh, my brain just drew a blank on the term. Not Arcanist. Uh, uh, in, uh, the the investigator types. Well, not. The oh no, no, you're right. The the um, artificers. Artificers. Yeah. Thank you. My brain was drawing a blank on the word artificers. Both of those are not in here, mm-hmm. uh, and they are core to the setting yeah. uh Kal- Kalistar are very tied to the psionics in the setting so mm-hmm. i can see why they're like yeah this isn't finished yeah yeah, yeah like that, that kind of stuff i'm uh, like definitely should add but just like uh there's a lot of like cool white space in this um that i i really like so like i feel like that they're more suggestive but anyways i'm here i'm I, i'm i'm Assuming from the way you're talking that the things that you're worried they're going to detail out more is is more setting stuff like the the details of different locations and what have you. Yeah, and like I, I I sort of get the impression. My guess is that that's not the kind of stuff they're looking to fill in more. Then, um, then that's perfect because their attitude has been like we've already published all of that. The lore hasn't changed, and it's all available on DM's Guild. Go buy the old stuff and, and read through it for that lore if you want it. Um, this is just sort of your primer on the world, uh, and that's sort of how, what they did with Sword Coast Adventures Guide as well. Is they they gave us uh, it wasn't it wasn't a, really a campaign guide for the Forgotten Realms, but it was sort of a primer, just a little bit about diff- these different snippets of different parts of the world, and I think that's what they're going for here. I, I think there's a, an important note of a difference between Eberron and Forgotten Realms we didn't mention, but is important to what Quinn's talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing with Eberron is the only thing that is canon is the main book. Yeah, that's actually really important. And that's why all of the lore from the previous editions is still just as useful because the timeline of the the setting as they publish it never goes forward. None of the novels are canon. Um, the the setting the, every time you started an Eberron campaign, the setting theoretically, unless you choose, of course, to advance it based off previous adventures, the setting is always starting the same everywhere mm-hmm. in the same year at, at the whole time. And there's like on one hand. I like reading comic books because I like the massive breadth of canon, right? Um, but there's also sometimes it's nice to, to pick up something that doesn't have all of that so I can just enjoy this story for what it is. And that's what Eberron right. tries to be. It tries to be that option of let's right. just pick up this story for what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I, I don't see them updating the, the setting info too much more. Um, it, like you said, because the book's are already out. And there are a lot of them. I've got all, all of yeah. them. Uh, but um, and, and even Keith Baker, the guy who writes it, uh, said that there's at least one book he doesn't use 
from yeah. the original set. Um, he's like, that's not canon in my game. Hmm. Um, so, I mean... You There's more there than, than you need, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so yeah. let's look at what's actually in this book, then. Um, it goes through, what, there are six chapters? Um, and it starts off with just sort of an introduction to this is sort of what Eberron is. Just a, what is it, a 12, 14-page introduction to what Eberron is. Uh, which I think is important and interesting, and it's the kind of thing that I could print out and hand to players to say, hey, you want to kind of know what the setting is and what we're getting into? This is what I'm thinking about for the campaign. Um, because that's sort of what it is. It's real sort of surface level, just big picture, um, the kind of stuff that we've been talking about now for 20 minutes, right? <laughs> sure. Um, chapter two, then, is your introduction to the world, and it sort of says, you know, these are the different regions. These are some of the things you might you might want to look at or think about. Um uh, yeah, go ahead. One, one one of the things I really liked um, in in that part uh, here uh, was uh, where they do sort of uh, we'll just start like near the top, but they do this uh, throughout it is uh, they're like uh, on dare, you know, they sort of you know give the like a capital like the you know big city, and they give like a little quick blurb, and then uh, bullet points interesting things about it, and then um, I love just the theme of the characters. Now I, I don't ha- I haven't read the short quick coast book so so if, if this is like the same format they use in the book then this is, it's, a, it's a little format. different than that but no. but uh uh you know like i like just the fact that they give these sort of uh quick templates of a uh character so like you can because those are the kind of things in play mm-hmm. uh that are sort of like if you read all of uh like a longer thing of it you could kind of glean this stuff out for it uh but like a player kind of just needs some things to Mm-hmm. Quick hits of kind of like, oh, how might I play this character mm-hmm. from this region? And sort of, uh, like, it just helps. I feel like it helps players get into the game faster uh, with some, you know, pick some option and go forth. I, yeah, I would. I, go ahead. I'll point out that each of those sections about the different regions in Corvair are, fit on a page. Yep, right. Yes. They, they, yeah. they don't carry over to the next page which means you could print out that page and hand it to a player and say this is the stuff you should probably know about that place mm-hmm. right and you and you if you, and, and you could actually just kind of print out like a set of them yeah. and whilst people are bringing like where are you from they could sort of swap out and kind of like you know take take a peek and just like you know look at all the the summary and and pick like during a group character creation it's it's nice mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. And it- Go ahead. And it, it does reinforce because one of the things they talk about is that, uh, you know, a lot of D&D settings can have uh, y- your alignment. If you're, as we were talking about earlier, if you're an orc, you're of a particular alignment, stuff like this. Um, in Eberron, it is about culture more. So where you're from, it can be incredibly important in those mm. terms. Yeah. Uh, uh, alignment means almost nothing in Eberron. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these, these, like, so I've been reading Eberron books since the the third edition days when it first came out, right? But yeah. I, I was discovered. It, it's weird because there's a lot less information in this book, and yet I was discovering things about Eberron that I had never realized or I'd completely glossed over or completely missed in the previous versions. Just because when there's so much, it's hard to find the signal from all the noise. But because it's, you know, every 
kingdom, every region, whatever, is boiled down to, to one page with a couple of paragraphs about it, in, a bullet points of interesting things, and here's the kind of characters you might make from it. Um, it boils it down to just the signal. And so I discover right. all these cool yeah. things. It's like, oh, man, yes. that's a really neat thing to do with the demon waste or with the orcs that I never right. even realized was an Eberron thing, and now I'm catching it. And, you know, that, right, so yeah, exactly. That. Like there's this, there's this, and this is, and this actually is one of the kind of first uh, uh, parts that I like about kind of like, kind of taking out, and it, it, and it's weird. It's like I don't want to think that like history and lore is filler, but it's it it, it takes places like like lore has this kind of uh, it's hard to make it actionable. I mm-hmm. guess is what I'd say, right? Is that like okay, here's like you know a hundred pages of the history of this thing, right? And so you have to like read that, and it can be fun to read. But it it sits pretty heavy in your mind, and you and like you were saying, it, you kind of miss stuff, right? But if somebody goes through and kind of gives you, for play purposes, the Cliff Notes version, mm-hmm. and go, here's the cool stuff out of that hundred pages, that fits on a page. That's like for a for a game, really powerful stuff. And I like that. I want both to exist, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like I like I like I want I want I want the playable stuff to be an anchor to the hundred pages of lore so when you're when you're interested in it because i think that's how it works a lot of times right you're like that was cool and then somebody's like and there was a book about that and you're like i'm gonna go read that book because i i liked it here and play or, or sometimes you want to get a play version of the lore that you know mm-hmm. uh but I, but i but i i, I really these days want that for a, a game that i run i don't want the hundred pages because right. who's gonna read it exactly? well and, and i and i think you're right i th- i think there's a, a really good place for both like this like I said, pointed out or brought to, to, to my attention so many things that I didn't notice before reading through the giant hundred pages of lore. But then a lot of times like I'm like, that's fantastic and that's interesting and I'm glad I saw that now and I'm glad I've read this. But now I want to run a campaign and when they go to Thrain, I want to know what's going on in Thrain. I need, now I need the hundred pages of lore. So I think there's a, there's a, a useful place for both. Sure. Um, but this is a great I, primer. Yeah, and you know, They've, the the setting's been out for 14 years now, right. so I suspect that Keith Baker has given some thought about how to explain these things to people a little better in that time frame. Yeah, well, and I'm and, and I sort of feel like because of the way they've handled that, and because it's not bogged down in all that lore, in many ways, this book is player facing in every way. Yes, but DM inspiring, you know. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. It's like evocative to both ends. But there's nothing there that that uh, my players can't read. Like th- it, we're going into Zalargo, great. You can go ahead and read the the entry on Zalargo. You're not going to get spoiled on anything. But I'm going to go over here and read the the hundred pages of lore <laughs> and look for inspiration for things. Uh, you know, other things. Absolutely. Uh, and and I'll say like another thing about um, uh, something like this um, is uh, the the way the information is laid out is I think it's also friendly to new. People like if you know, so like Eberron is uh, like I know about Eberron, but I'm not like I've never been deep in the lore, mm-hmm. and I've never really. And after a certain part, right? If you haven't hopped in after a while, you're like, okay, well, I could do. Ev- oh my god, how many books? Whew. Right. Like I'm like I actually have things like you know you're like you know I have I have some other setting like I I'm I'm a Dark Sun guy right like I I'm very in, in the heavy of that right and like you can only do that with so many settings right mm-hmm. and so but this is like you know uh, having having got this. And this is the first time I was inspired to like run an Eberron game ever. Hmm. That's awesome, right? Because right? I was like, you know, it's it's approachable. 
Yeah. I have all kinds of problems right now because uh, I keep getting inspired to run campaigns in different settings. <laughs> and I don't have time to do any of them because I'm in the middle of a different setting in a different campaign right now. So. <laughs> Like I, now I want to I want to run Eberron I want to run Midgard I want to run you know what like I want to run Curse of Strahd there's all kinds of stuff I want to d- dive into so all you need is just an extra twenty four hours per uh, day sure. I do need an extra twenty four hours a day uh, and, and we haven't even gotten into like you know the 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 other one they announced so yeah oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> I imagine once I read Ravnica then I'll be all about that too right uh, absolutely so. Uh, so it, after it goes through through all of the different sort of regions and kingdoms and whatever of Corvair, which is the main uh, continent that the the setting of Eberron takes place on, uh, it sort of then goes into sort of um, some lore and other things like what do you need to know about sort of the calendar or the currency? Just some little blurbs mm-hmm. to help you fill out the, the how that mm-hmm. works, the, how religion works because. Um, uh, Eberron is not a setting where the gods, you know, come down to the to the world and, and stomp around on it and, and shout out commands. Uh, that is not a thing that happens. And so, one could actually question whether or not the gods are actual things or not in Eberron. Yeah, it's uh, one of the things that makes separates it from uh, some of the other settings. Is yeah. gods, for lack of a better description, don't exist. No, they're 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 distant at best. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> there is there was in three point five uh, a, uh, a a church of the Lord of Blades. Mm-hmm. You got spells from that church, right? The Lord of Blades is not, in fact, a god. It, it's a it's a person, an NPC that in the that exists in the world that you can go and meet and have a conversation yeah. with. And he's not even that powerful. No. I mean, he's he, he he makes a powerful opponent, but he's not. I'm a god level opponent. No, I want to say he was like mid teens in in terms of level. Yeah. So that the assumption is that your for the religions in the setting is that your belief is what's providing you the power. Mm-hmm. It's not some divine being that might show up and tell you what to do. Your belief is what's giving you that power. Mm-hmm. Uh, from there, it goes on to talk about the the other regions of the world, uh, the other continents that exist, uh, Everice and Ar- Aranel and Zindric and Arganesson and Sarlona are all these other different uh, continents that exist. And what was the other one? A Frostfell. The, there's the Everice in the south and the Frostfell in the north, but they're the, like the, the frozen polar regions. Uh, and so there's just sort of a, a, a bullet pointed, like, here's three bullet points of things that you could do in these places and a one paragraph sort of description and move on. Yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the bit in there that I would uh, point out is Zendrick is the place you want to go and, and, and explore ancient ruins. Uh, ancient Argonauts ruins from the giants, right? From the giants. Argonossin is the place you you don't want to go because the dragons will eat you. Uh, Sarlona is the place you don't want to go because it's a dystopic hellscape ruled by psychic nightmare creatures. Mm-hmm. And Aranol, where there are ancient undead elves who tell the elves what to do. Mm. Which is strange because you say that Sarlona you don't want to go to because that's where the dragons eat you, and that's the only of the other continents that I've been to. Uh, no, Argonossin is the... the oh, yeah, that's what I meant, Argonossin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Argonossin. Argon- the- Go ahead. 
Where are the dinosaurs? Uh, Covair. On, on Corvair in the Talentia Plains. Yep. Halflings riding dinosaurs. Well, that is my husband's favorite thing, so that I, that's one thing I have to start remembering. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, that uh, was the first thing he said as soon as he heard that this PDF was out, by the way. Oh. That's the, awesome. The, the, the halflings of the Talenta Plain ride dinosaurs into battle. They're kind of awesome. Um, uh, <laughs> and they're not the cannibalistic halflings of Dark Sun. They're just... We hang out here, and we got along with the dinosaurs. It's all cool. We totally domesticated them, and now we're buddies. Yeah, yeah. Now, now we now we just need to get now we just need to get the cannibals halflings from Dark Sun on the dinosaurs, and like, <laughs> it's on. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Um, I I just did want to go back to like just the um, uh, one like probably my favorite. I I, I think I, there are a lot of stuff stuff. Like I mentioned, I like about chapter two and that that second, but my favorite part is probably uh, mage rights. Yeah, and it's, it's like I love it. It's just kind of like almost like the the way it's written is kind of just like this kind of slice of life, kind of just like thing detailing people who aren't adventurers and but just how they sort of do this stuff, mm. and it's like almost like a it's weird. It's it's it's, this, it's like very informal class description almost. The mage rights right. that you said, right? Right. Yeah. 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 They're they're sort of the art of the, they're the in in the in the setting where where magic equals industrialism, they're the factory workers. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the, and the laborers and like this kind of like you know possible artisans, you know, and they just what what I like about it is uh, we talked about uh, the the way that is sort of player and DM facing, right? Mm-hmm. And this this is like I feel like the perfect interface if you're as a gm uh i read this and go oh cool here's things i can sort of um make things available to players mm-hmm. and as a player you could look at it and go oh here's how i can get things like it's an interface to how i can help solve problems or get help right and have interesting interactions mm-hmm. and uh one slingers are similar where it's uh here's how magic uh, influence fighting in the world basically yeah, they're military yeah they're 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 gunslingers except they're using wands mm-hmm. move along yeah. right <laughs> so then they get into the the sort of planner the planes and whatever and how everyone interacts with the planes and all that kind of stuff uh, it, it's interesting to me because I, when i look back at eberron and the planes and and they maintain this in many ways um, I always sort of felt like the way that they set up the planes was like, look, we're doing Eberron over here. You keep all the rest of your settings away from us. Uh, <laughs> they kind of walk that back a little bit in this book where they're like, this is Eberron. Leave your other settings away from us. But here's how you can break that rule and still sort of bring the other stuff in if you want to. Um, sure. Which, I mean, you always could have done anyway, right? It's your game. Um but but it's sort of like it, it feels like they they've softened the barrier a little bit to to sort of because maybe I imagine because as was pointed out earlier like there's all these adventures that that people own and want to run and um, if they want to do it in Eberron there are barriers to do that because of the planes. Yeah, I, I think the the player new players coming into Eberron who are used to the Great Wheel uh, cosmology mm-hmm. will need to take a moment with the planes of Eberron because they are vastly different in how they're presented. 
Um, for instance, the they move, and sometimes they move over Eberron, and that influences things in Eberron. Some of them are constantly interfacing with Eberron. Um, the plane of, uh, oh, which one was it? Um, one of the planes actually, uh, the Azure Sky, the Syriana, mm -hmm. is constantly interfacing with Sharn, which is why they have uh, so many flying ships and uh, feather tokens that work in that city because it's constantly co interfacing with the uh, the Azure Sky. Right. But it's also um, interesting because, like, Ebron is not the setting to tell your big planner story. So you you say that the planes are vastly different and you might take some time to get used to that. But on the other hand, yeah. like, I have found that it's not really that big of a deal because most stories aren't dramatically interacting with the planes. Like, they might influence the story here and there. But one of the points they make in here is that, like, sure, there might be a... a, a a demiplane or a plane or whatever full of demons and devils and all kinds of things. Um, but they're not interested in, in invading Ebron. They're not interested in invading the material plane like they are in other settings. Um, they, they're kind of interested in dominating their own little slice of, of the cosmos, right? Uh, and so they might pop over and they might become a thing, but you're not likely to see, you know, mass armies of, of whatever. Uh, although, over often. although it's history, is dramatically influenced by mm. planes doing just that. Uh, Zoriat mm -hmm. and Dalcor both uh, involves invading alien uh, beings from those planes trying to push their way into Eberron. Sure. And they left a huge impact on the world. Mm -hmm. um, so you could certainly do that. Yeah, you can tell that story, but that's not really the story of Eberron. The story of Eberron is about conflict and massive conflict, but it's typically conflict between the people of Eberron. Sure. Um, so, so then we get into finally chapter three. Are we ready to talk about races? Mm-hmm. Yep. Sure. So um, Eberron has well, – well, we talked about how it sort of says – Anything that exists in D&D can exist in Eberron. Uh, it also has certain things that it added that makes it sort of iconic Eberron um, that are unique to, to Eberron. Uh, and, and that was always – like I remember hearing about it when it won the challenge, the, the, the contest back in the third edition days, right? And, I, and part of the challenge was we want you to create a setting that encompasses everything that D&D is. Um, and, and I look at Eberron I'm like, well, this is not sort of – the iconic of everything that is D&D sort of ratcheted up to 11, this is a wholly unique thing. And my evidence is if it was just, you know, D&D cranked up to 11, it wouldn't need all these extra things. Um, now I have come to a realization that that wasn't the point. They wanted a setting that could encompass all of D&D, but that, that not that just was you know, sort of the epitome of all that D&D was. And so they added in um, races like the Changelings, uh, which are sort of uh, PC level doppelgangers, is that fair? Yeah. The Kalashtar, which are humans that have bonded with spirits that are fighting against the 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 psionic invasion that that Jeremiah just recently mentioned. Uh, the Shifters, which are sort of uh, lycanthrop light uh, PC races, and then the Warforged, which are your sentient robots. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I would add that 
uh, all of these are were introduced by Eberron. Mm-hmm. None of them have anything in them that would make them break any other setting. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to put Warforged in Forgotten Realms, you can. We, you I believe put... we did that, didn't we, Jeremiah? Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No, it's interesting, and and when you, you you say that, and I see, I've seen that a lot, and I think every time I've seen an Eberron race appear in another setting, it's always somebody who wants to play Warforged. Like, somehow they get to be the stars of the different races of Eberron. Sure. I mean, Warfor- War- War- I think Warforge are actually uh, from, like, setting and um, kind of uh, what they represent. Or, like, actually, probably one of the, outside of your, like, standard kind of uh, races, mm-hmm. one of the coolest kind of extra mm-hmm. races of any of D&D settings. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, there's yeah, just no. a, lot, a lot of concepts and yeah. stuff that they... I agree. They, I, th- I think Eberron are really evocative and interesting and unique uh, and, and appealing to lots of different settings. I think Changelings can have that same appeal, uh, but they're less... They stand out less. Um, I think Kalashtar are very specific to an Eberron story, and so they don't yeah. tend to show up very much. Uh, and then, I don't know, Shifter's always like never really stood out to me as in Eberron as being a really important, iconic part of the story. Um, they're kind of an interesting thing, I guess, but they don't feel like if Eberron didn't have shifters, I don't know how the, the world would change at all. So. I, <laughs> I, I would say that they fit into sections of Eberron very well, like supremely important. But if for a lot of people and myself to a certain extent, Sharn is your core starting point right. for for Eberron, and they don't fit in as well there. Sure, uh, you put them in the Eldine Reaches, they fit perfectly. They're part of the story. You put them in uh, relation to some of the other nations, uh, like Thrain and, and what have you. They fit in very well there. But Sharn, they just don't have a core story inside Sharn. Okay, and that. That's the key. That's the starting point a lot of people start with in Eberron. So I can see your point there. Um, the one that actually always bugged me were the Kalistar. And it's not because I think they're bad or, <laughs> or anything. It's just it's super hard to wrap your head around the notion of you've got an extra soul inside you <laughs> that sort of influences who you are, mm-hmm. but not is like, it isn't a separate voice that talks to you. You're never really quite clear on how you're supposed to play a Kalishtar. Mm, I can see that. Yeah. But they're, but they're really like, they have that evocative story um, sure. that, that certainly stands out. Right. Kalashtar is one that's interesting for me here though, for reasons that you mentioned earlier in that, one of the things that always made Kalashtar interesting and unique is that they are one of the races that are inherently tied to the idea of psionics. And yet yeah. we have a version of Kalashtar now at a time that psionics are not a thing that exists in D&D yet. Uh, or at least they haven't... Like, we don't have any psionic mechanics. So like previous editions, Kalashtar... Kalashtar are basically humans that, that take in these extra... These entities from another plane that that are fighting back against the invasion of the the Cthuloid uh, Lovecraftian invasion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in previous editions, the Kalashtar were always like they would get bonus power points to use for their psionics and that kind of stuff. Like they've imp- they've implemented s- this in such a way that like you get the idea. It's got the mental powers and that kind of stuff that come along with having the other mind inside of the body and whatever. 
Um, but I'll be curious to see like if they keep evolving this until the point that that psionics are out. And I would suspect that psionics probably won't come out in this book, but would come out in another book, and then they would do it a, a bunch of editions in this book. Um, I'll be curious to see if they revise the Kalashtar once Sionics are out, or maybe add a, a sidebar with a variant version of Kalashtar or something like that. Yeah, I think um, the Changeling actually... So when Changelings came out originally, it seemed pretty straightforward. And people kind of glommed onto it. I had players in a game who wanted to play Changeling. They're awesome. They're great. I love them. Uh, I think they you can change your view of how they play uh, after Game of Thrones when they have the Faceless Men. Mm. And when yeah. people uh, saw the Faceless Men who become the fa- the person that they put the face on, mm-hmm. that sort of plants the idea of how changelings are supposed yeah. to be played. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I yeah. am not a Game of Thrones person. Um, that mm. I mean, I don't think I got that, past that's a, that, two that's, seasons. That, that is a... That is a really good, you know, like it just goes into the general kind of uh, theme that that something that's hyper, like like a, a hyper magical world like uh, Eberron and with all these kind of like great kind of things, like it, it's interesting just like, you know, it's been out for, God, how long? How many years, right? And mm. all, the, all of these themes have actually provided, have, have provided visuals that make... Yeah. That when we're at the table, then makes it go. Oh, you can, you know, uh, you know, somebody has to have watched to get the reference. But you know, you could probably pull something up. You know, if you if we were playing a game, we could probably pull something up on YouTube so you could see it, and then yeah. you have it in your head as kind of a visual reference. And you know, it makes all of this stuff work a lot better. It's kind of cool. Cool. Uh, I I think the description uh, Keith Baker gave, and I maybe in the text somewhere here as well, where there's the the one medic in the in, in the village of, of uh, changelings and you keep seeing the same medic over and over again <laughs> it's after a while you realize that's not actually the same changeling that these changelings take the identity of that medic every time they're on duty to help fix people i see that's cool it's like it's like an on-call system yeah <laughs> you're like okay like you, you you change your face to put on your pager i'm like yeah, there you go so, well, yeah. oh, go ahead, Tracy. I was just been thinking in terms of building rapport, like, it's a lot easier if you have a familiar face. Yeah, there you Absolutely. go. Absolutely. That's an interesting take on, on Changelings and, and a different one than, than typically, I think, uh, people might have thought of with the Changelings. So that's that's interesting. Um, the other race that I that we mentioned earlier as sort of being the standout star that, that seems to appear in all the other settings when people move things is, is the Warforged, um, which... I, re- I described as sort of sentient robots, right? But it's not quite robots. They're more like magical constructs, but they kind of look like robots and uh, what have you. The thing that I found interesting here, though, is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember Warforged having sub-races before. Like, they had, like, prestige classes and, and that kind of stuff in, in other editions. But I don't remember them having... Yeah. Sub races, and I feel like that's what yeah. they're doing is they're taking some of what used to be a prestige class, uh, and they're making it into a sub race. Does that seem right? Yeah. Yeah. Which I think, which I find interesting, like the idea of the the uh, the Warforged envoy that that mm-hmm. um, is designed with you know specialized functions, or the Juggernauts, or the Skirmisher. Like the, these are evocative to me uh, and make um, these otherwise potentially sort of 
um, monotone, faceless, uh, can sometimes be a little bit boring in, in play um, characters into something more unique and interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, the the classic books, they actually had one uh, prestige class that was uh, Warforged that were trying to become basically human. Uh, where the idea was that they wanted to distinguish themselves from being a manufactured race and just be becoming real. I'm a real boy now. Um, (laughs) But uh, the juggernaut was definitely a prestige class. The one that is actually new here is the envoy. Mm -hmm. But I found that Mm -hmm. one interesting. Um, They did have some things, some uh, things that you could install on the Warforged, items that were, like, installable items. That and we, gave and you we have that again on- here, although there's not very many. Right. Uh, but it gave you the same sort of experience that oh, the sure. Envoy gets. But this is the first time I've seen it enumerated as a, a, a core part of mm-hmm. Warforged. Uh, and then in the interest of time, because, um, you know, we're... we're- yeah. Uh, we're running late. Sorry. Uh, no, that's fine. That's a great conversation. Uh, the rest of the chapter sort of goes through all the more standard races of D&D and sort of describes this is how they fit in. Uh, sometimes they throw in little like racial quirks and, you know, that fit in with the idea of like the bonds, flaws, um, ideals, that kind of stuff. And then, of course, you get you some stats for dinosaurs so that your halflings can ride dinosaurs. So I'm sure Fred was happy about that, right, Tracy? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, and it also does include... Uh, Rules for playing the other races from the other books, like Githyanki and Asimar, and right. uh, stuff not, like not that. Not rules, but but descriptions of how they fit in the, the setting. Yeah, descriptions of how they fit in the setting. Uh, the the two things I would point out that are like distinct differences that people should be aware of up front. They remove the "I followed an evil goddess" uh, element of uh, from Drow. They're just mm-hmm. yeah. You know, from this uh, southern continent, uh, and uh, right because that is not part of the story of Drow in Eberron at all. No, no, they are not tied to uh, Loth in any way. They are not right. evil. They're just the they're from a savage uh, continent. That's well, it. And they're not necessarily evil. They can be anything, right? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the uh, gnomes, gnomes are not the friendly happy-go-lucky gnomes you're familiar with they are absolutely not they are cutthroat vicious mm-hmm. social manipulators um it's in basically they turn them into an entire nation of of uh, of uh spies that's crazy that's like making halflings into cannibals or something yeah yeah <laughs> put things in their head a little bit uh the fourth chapter then is all about dragon marks dragon marks are one of those sort of iconic things that people remember about eberron uh, and somebody always wants to play a dragon marked character uh in the uh, dragon marks so if you're from a certain bloodline you might manifest a dragon mark and there are sort of these magical tattoos that just appear on your body and they allow you to channel certain kinds of magic and so it's allowed those families to come to dominate uh, certain types of trade and other and segments of of the economy of the world, Not, and, and they're they're transnational, right? They're, um, they're they're those sort of I described them as megacorps before, but without the part of about ruling, sort of you know becoming governmental um, in many ways. Uh, in previous editions, they did dragon marks as a series of 
uh, feats in both third and fourth edition. You could take a feat to become dragon marked, and then there's two other feats to make your dragon marks, you know, stronger, more powerful, whatever. I thought the way they handled it here was really interesting. In that instead of it being a feat, they've just created new uh, sub-races or builds for different races uh, for people who want to be dragon-marked. So if you want to be an elf who's dragon-marked, then here are the dragon-marks that are available to elves. And you just choose that as your sub-race instead of, you know, uh, forest elf or, or whatever, right? There's no high elves. In, well, there are high elves and forest elves, but then there's also this other thing, which is the dragon-marked elves. Mm-hmm. Uh, the that does actually show as a marked difference from previous in one specific in-world explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, the previous versions, you if you wanted a dragon mark and you weren't from one of the standard races that get that dragon mark, uh, the assumption was that's fine. PCs are an exception to a rule. Well, PCs are an exception to a rule, and that plays into the story because you are now aberrant, and there's a whole thing that goes along with that. Right now, it's not that. No, the, you, there you, there are you, still aberrant dragon marks, but they function sure, differently you, now. But you can you can either get an aberrant dragon you can get an aberrant dragon mark, which is not one of the standard ma- dragon marks. Before you could actually get one of the standard dragon marks, even if you weren't from the race that was normally associated with it. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, I, I don't hate the niche protection that they've done here. Um, I think handling it this way works really well for me. So I, I, I don't think it's bad. I just think it's something worth noting. It is, it is worth noting. Now, there are some uh, things that I think will be cleared up with time that I found in the in this section. There's several times when, when the dragon mark says, um, you know, you know this cantrip or you know this spell or that spell or whatever – um, but it doesn't explicitly state you know this cantrip and can cast it. Um, mm-hmm. I think it should probably be assumed they meant you know it and can cast it so that it's yeah. not just useful for people of spellcasting classes. Um, uh, and I would hope or think that the, the several times I noted that um, that that will just get cleared up as they as they errata this and, and continue to evolve it and edit it. No, that's a that's a fair point. Actually, I, I, I um, the the language of how they put these things in rules text is important. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so the, the mark of the sentinel has the sentinel shield. You know the cantrip blade ward. You can cast shield once. Okay, but why do I know the th- the other spell if I can't cast it? I have to assume that you can. They just haven't. Right, it's just like a language. <laughs> right, they just haven't cleaned up that language yet. Yeah, I, I one of the things I don't really like about the dragon dragon market uh, for me was just, and again, it's a living document, so this is, I'm sure this can get tweaked out. Um, but I feel like this is probably the one that needs the most tweaking mm. and working is is that so like a dragon mark uh, and, and and you just have to pardon me like I don't know the full on lore of them, but I like I remember them from Emberon, uh the basics of it, but like. I feel like something like I have this special bloodline should grow with me as a character. Like I should, as I like level up or decide to somehow invest in it, like kind of be able to use it better. Mm-hmm. But like as it's presented, is they're sort of static. Uh, uh, they're not. Or they're, they're or not. There's a feat. You could take you. Yeah, you could take the feat for greater dragon mark, which increases their power. Uh, yeah, but I mean, so like, I, like. I, 
the, my impression is that, like, like, I guess feats are sort of, like, I mean, I, I guess most, do, in games I've been playing, people aren't using feats all the time. Like, no, they don't come up very often in my in my experience. Right, like, uh, you know, it, like, which is a weird, it's weird to have uh, an, an edition, uh, you know, like, I can't remember the last time I played an edition where feats weren't, like, a, a thing, right? Like, they were, like, prominent all throughout, like, third and fourth, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so, so it does kind of tweak my mind uh, to have this edition where, where we're not doing that. But uh, it, it, for for me, I, like 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 more in the kind of the way, uh, like I'd like to see kind of uh, instead of like a, a feat progression or something like a, a kind of uh, parceling out some of the abilities, like amongst like level or or some like, like to just see see it as a, as a theme that I get. As I grow, sure, and, and I think you know. So I think there's there's something to be said about that. Although in the lore of the world, that's not really a thing that happens very often. Like the people who develop greater dragon marks beyond the the normal ones are are relatively rare um, in the in the setting, well, and most people just go their whole lives and and it never. Well, grows. I mean, I mean, I mean, grow. Sorry, uh, uh, grow in how I can use what I have. I guess sure. I guess that that, that that that's the thing. It's like like I, I have this ability. But well, maybe I can and I think the I think the other uh, point on that is is that I suspect some of that is a function of the fact that they did roll it into races and in, into being sub races, whatever. Right. Because if they if they did develop into being able to do more things or different things or whatever, um, then it becomes a balance issue of oh, clearly these dragon marked versions of right. the races are just flat out better than all the others. Right and and well and but and then I guess that's sort of why I, I feel like I feel like I want to want the Dragon Mark thing to live in another space and, and I couldn't tell you what that space would be. Well, right, because there, but <laughs> because feats aren't a big thing like we already talked about. Right, right? exactly, exactly. <laughs> so. Right. So, yeah. so, 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 so it's a tricky thing. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that it's an, uh, a trivial kind of thing, but it just I felt like I I, I like that it's there and I, I like where. Is starting, but that—that was—that's the part that left me feeling like oh, a little bit. Okay. See, I really like what they've done with it here, uh, and I think it's—it's it's interesting and and helps push Dragon Marks um, in ways that uh, before it didn't because it didn't so much have the niche protection um, because it was open to anybody. And PCs, of course, are always the exception to every rule. Yeah, and I—I I think I—I I think given Five E's design language it is uh it's as much as we can expect um the the other option that would have worked is to introduce a whole new sort of power path and then had people had something else for people who didn't want a dragon mark Mm -hmm. to take that gave them an equal uh, benefit from taking that other power path, but that's a whole uh, different sort of clunky thing to add on to a game that already right. So. And so I could see why they were like, "Yeah, we're just gonna go with races." I I'm a little surprised that they didn't just again turn it into feats and then just say, "In Eberron, everybody starts with a feat at first level." Mm-hmm. Um, and that way, uh, you can keep it on the feat path like it was historically and you know people can still invest their feats into it uh and you get benefit for not taking dragon mark okay Mm -hmm. i don't have that but i have my you know two weapon fighting or or what have you um 
and that's I mean, that's an option they could have done, but given the uh, 5e sort of design language, this is probably the best they could do with it. I mean, and you say that like it's a bad thing. I I really like this implementation. This is probably my favorite implementation of Dragon Marks uh, since they they came out, so. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, and I want to, it's not bad. It's just like, there's just kind of so much elegance in other areas. I feel like, like, like I felt, I felt like, the, the races were elegantly designed, like what they did with the Warforged and the breaking the sub races up and like the um, the armor kind of thing where you could like, you know, sort of, uh, what was the, uh, the uh, protection kind of stuff like that stuff. Mm-hmm. I thought that was like super elegant. Um, so it was just, you, you know, like if they could tweak it, like it's not, it's not going to kill anybody. Um, if it's left as it is, it's fine. It's just, they set a high bar. And and I continue to maintain this is probably about as elegant a solution that that I've seen. But we can I mean, we yeah, can we can disagree. I mean, good enough is good enough is great. You know. Yeah, I, and I think um, the only thing I miss here, as opposed to th- the earlier implementations, is the thing I brought up earlier, where you could before you could take a dragon mark, even if you weren't of the correct house or race, uh, uh, you know, and just be like. Yeah, my Warforged has a dragon mark. Deal with it. Right. And there's interesting stories that can be told with that. And in my experience, yeah. more often, it turned into interesting min-maxing. Well, maybe. So, uh, so I, li- yeah. I like discouraging that and saying, look, you can totally do this dragon mark. But you have to do this thing and fit into that that situation. Uh, so. But, yeah, all, all said, while we have minor quibbles with the the implementation here... I don't think any of us think it's a bad implementation. No, it's just no. it feels a bit clunky at, at points. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So the la- is it the last chapter? The fifth chapter, anyway, is magic items. Yeah. Uh, magic items are kind of a big deal for Eberron because, as we've discussed, magic is everywhere. Um, but in much that regard, like much of the magic item section tends to be relatively minor magic items, right? It's not... They're everyday common sort of things. It's it's the cleansing stone that you know the the local tavern uh, might put in their front stoop so that everybody who walks through is automatically cleaned and that kind of stuff. You know, uh, the ever you know the feather token so people in Sharn with the impossibly high towers don't go careening off to their deaths all the time. Mm-hmm. Um. The they do explain how dragon shards are used, mm-hmm. which and is I found useful. that interesting. And they throw in this section on eldritch machines, and then make it clear within it that you know this is really a story point, not really a thing for PCs. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this is you know. this is a, a MacGuffin for your adventure. Please right. do not give your PCs this machine. I mean, I guess it's a it's a nice. Uh, seed for for story ideas and it's a nice sort of uh recognition in the rules of these kinds of things can totally exist don't come down on your dm for doing something that that seems like it should be impossible right yeah Um, i like the arcane focuses they're mm -hmm. they're nice uh gives you a a a a, it's one of those things where i'm like i was kind of surprised that we hadn't seen this in other settings honestly of your arcane focus uh, gives you a slight benefit because it's made of a special material. That's mm-hmm. kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and know. it's not a huge Little. benefit. It's it's an extra, you know, a, a, a plus one to certain kinds of damage or uh, right. a, a d four of resistance to certain kinds of things and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But it's 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 little things that that you know flavor the character. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, they've got a Dragon Mark focus item. So basically, mm-hmm. if you're a Dragon Mark, you want these because they help you be more awesome as a Dragon Mark guy. Or they're oh. the kinds of things that that you know, in order to make sure that only uh, people of the Dragon Mark house can do certain things, then these are the things that can only be activated by people with that Dragon Mark. So now we know you're in the family. And, and of course, they have uh, the coolest item in this entire section. The Warforge component docent. Yeah, it is. Like so, so Warforge components are kind of a cool idea. Of it's like items that you can attach to your Warforge and customize the sort of the chassis, right, or attach to the chassis uh, to customize your Warforge character. Um, I remember thinking, hey, that's really cool, and then always wishing there were more options. Um, I find that to be even more true now because this book only has three options, right? There's the the arm blade, which is sort of the iconic, like I replace my arm with a sword. Um, there's the wand sheath in that, like I can hold wands in my my arm, which is actually kind of more useful than I originally gave it credit for because because it, it allows you to attune to multiple things in one slot without taking up multiple attunements because you can only attune to a certain number of things. Unless sure. you stick them in your arm sheath and then you can attune to all of them. Um, so that's kind of cool. And then there's, as you pointed out, the docent, which I didn't remember from previous editions. I uh, I, I did find a, that at least it appeared in 4th edition. Um, but it's yeah. super cool. It's this like sphere that the Warforge sticks in their chest and allows them to sort of translate and it helps them do things. And it's like a little, a little chest servant. It, it, <laughs> so. it, it's Warforged Siri. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> oh no, I'm just. <laughs> and, and now I have to now I have to make a Warforged war... with a docent that that uses Siri's voice. Or Siri, or like a, a, a you know Alexa, or any of these. Yeah. And now I'm just and now I'm just picturing a Warforged going like you know Alexa, do this. No, not this. You know, like and like having like having one of these like bad voice recognition kind of things mm-hmm. like in the middle mm-hmm. of an adventure like. I don't think I'll. I don't think that's going to leave my mind now. Yeah, Siri, detect <laughs> magic. No, not fireball. Detect magic. <laughs> but you know, but at the same time, it could. It would be a really pretty funny little scene. Like if you sort of like, oh sure, like sure. role playing that out. And you're just like, wait, what did you mean exactly? And you just like, <laughs> no, I wanted this. Also, the fact that calling they're... mom. Yes, calling mom indeed. I, I would be fine with a, uh, adding the uh, message uh, ability to the docent so they can send messages so can, to yeah, mom. Yeah, you can call mom. Uh, <laughs> or, 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 like, or, or just like, you know, is it like auto-correcting like your spells? Yeah. So, again, in the interest of time, uh, chapter six then is a deep dive into the, into the one specific city, uh, and that's the city of Sharn, which, as Jeremiah pointed out, kind of generally serves as a starting point for most Eberron campaigns. Um, I like that they've gone through like all of the player's handbook backgrounds and added just little tweaks and bits of information to make it more Sharnish. Um, It's the kind of stuff that makes those things feel less uh, generic. Uh, And then it's just sort of a deep dive. Here's the different locations. Here's the different things that you can do there. Here's the, you know, here's the things, here's the, the, kinds of celebrations and parties that happen in different parts of Sharn and, and all kinds of stuff like that and, and uh, organizations and, and all that kind of stuff to, to sort of be seeds for the beginning of, of stories. In fact, there's a whole section on here's three examples of starting points where you can begin a campaign in Sharn. And they have random tables for you to generate an adventure. Right. Just yeah, here's some adventure hooks. Have fun. 
see, I, I, I would, I would love, I would have loved them, uh, you know. And if they're expanding that, and like, you know, if you, if anyone's like listening and like wants to listen to me particularly, these starting points should be most of the section, right? Like, 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 Sharn should have a bunch of those starting points that are sort of like explaining those things, and then you just kind sure. of like can pick, pick I, that, like, you know. I, I would uh, add that when I was reading this section, the the slight changes to the backgrounds. I really want them to build on that. Mm, I don't yes. want them to leave it at there because yeah. the slight tweaks. I'm like, come on, guys, make setting specific backgrounds. Right. We can yes. use the ones sure. in the player's handbook. Make some setting specific ones. Ones that can only happen here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, then then it wraps up with some some appendices, which are mostly like a glossary, some some further reading of things you can find on DM's Guild if you want to read from stuff from previous editions, uh, and then some you know the, some artwork, you know the the maps and the crests and that kind of stuff. Uh, sure. And that's the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron as it exists in version one. Uh, mm-hmm. In the interest of time, quick last thoughts. <laughs> Too late. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think um, I think there are a few things that maybe we we left out on some of the uh, assumptions of the setting that are important for people to understand when they're digging into it. Yeah, but I don't know that they're that important. I think we can hit every, all the high points that people need to know to know whether or not they're interested in Eberron. I, I think the big the biggest one that we probably should bring up is PCs are the heroes of the world. They are not just one like random set of adventurers in a world full of adventurers they're supposed to sure. be and they the, the they most inher- imp- yeah they inherently grow to become more powerful than the npcs right yeah at the same time set. or at the same time they're also because of the noir genre they're also always sort of the oftentimes the down on their luck uh can't scrape two dimes together sort of characters right sure so they can be both things over time. I, I also wish this book had uh, monsters. Uh, sure. There's yeah. nothing in here about monsters. And yes, this is a player facing book to a certain extent, but I need to know, okay, are you going to make a DMs facing book with creatures that are unique to Ebron for me to use? Cause there are some creatures unique to Ebron as bad guys that I would like to see set it up for fifth edition. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Other, um, other last thoughts. Um, so I, so I want to say, so um, I've been sort of uh, singing praises for the format of the book. Um, I do really like the format of the book, but one of the things I really like about the format of the book uh, is, you know, my, my, my own little, uh, uh, designer brain, but then it's like a GM brain. I like this format for things that I build, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, it's very easy to fall down, like, rabbit holes of, like, cool, like, I'm gonna, like, like write, like, you know, uh, 30 pages about the history of this place, and, like, that's great, and and, and again, you want to put that in the thing, but when your players play it, they're, they're unlikely to want to invest that time to read that, and so, like, what's the actual, like, it's kind of, if you were to borrow... Uh, template out what, how they did this and borrow things for your own campaigns. You can sort of extract the highlights and put them in a format for your own work that will make 
it very easy to follow for someone for your sure. players or if you're going to publish something like you know i think this would be a a great thing for even third-party publishers i think to follow something like this and then and then release kind of like lore as kind of add-on or you know you know, or put it in another section of the book, or you know, however you want to structure it. There are lots of ways to do it. Um, so I, I think it serves as a great sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, like it's a great primer to Eberron. Like again, it was the first thing that's really gotten me interested. To be like, ooh, maybe I'd run a little like short Eberron campaign um, using this. Like I could easily do that with this. Um, but also, I was like, ooh, I have a, I have a campaign that I'm working on right now, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I'm gonna, buy, I'm gonna steal the heck out of this format. And right, if we might write. There you go. Tracy, yeah. any last thoughts? Uh, I really like the extensive use of random tables. Yes. Uh, because, um, and I think it kind of goes to Quinn's point of view in terms of, you know, it's it's much easier to go through the list and say, like, wow, this actually tells me a lot about uh, the setting and potentially the diversity of the setting without taking a lot of pages to do it. Hmm. Sure. All right. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. Um, actually, the you know talking about the format, uh, the fact that there are huge numbers of pages that could be printed off as a single page and mm-hmm. handed out to PCs is a big boon to this book. Mm-hmm. Like even in the Sharn section, the sections of Sharn are single page handouts, mm-hmm. uh, no. and that's that that's very useful. Right. Okay, so now that we've already got a hundred and or an hour and fifteen minutes into this uh, conversation, uh, I'm going to make it even longer. It's going to be a supersized episode because now we're going to a quick interview with Keith Baker, the creator of Eberron himself. I am here now with Keith Baker, game designer, novelist, and the font of creativity that brought us all Eberron, as well as one of the writers on the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron. If Middle-earth belongs to Tolkien, if the Forgotten Realms is Ed Greenwood's, Eberron belongs to Keith Baker. So, welcome back to the show, sir. Hi, it's good to be back. It's been a long time since we've chatted last, but uh, it's it's an episode I remember fondly. Uh, it is it is same for me, and of course, it's been a very long time since uh, Eberron rolled into existence. It, uh, it feels like just the other day to me, but I'm yeah. always astounded. Yeah, I, th- I think the last episode I had, John, um, we actually did an advice episode. It wasn't about a specific mm-hmm, product, mm-hmm. And, and you came up with an idea for a world about... Uh, um, about the resource of diamonds because diamonds uh, mm-hmm. become incredibly valuable for, for resurrecting people and all that. Uh, and it sort I, uh, of gave us some insight into how you create worlds. Someone actually just, just threw out something on my website that I thought was a, a fun idea of the, the fifth edition version of the Raven Queen is that she collects the memories of the dead mm-hmm. or, you know, something like that. And this guy was suggesting that uh, when you resurrect someone, because in Eberron you go to Dolor and your memories fade away, that it's that the Raven Queen collects your memories and that the diamonds are buying your memories back from her. Oh, and while I'm personally not not incorporating that, I mm-hmm. thought that was a fun justification for for you know why diamonds. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Yeah, and that's actually. Um... 
I think that may be relevant to a question I want to kind of talk a little bit about, little bit about later. But first, uh, for anybody who uh, has listened to us talk about the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron for the last hour or so, uh, and listen to us sort of muddle through trying to explain exactly what Eberron is, let's get your take, since, since it was originally your brainchild. Uh, what is Eberron? Well, Eberron is a world, you know, the one sentence description that I had way back in the day was uh, Lord of the Rings meets Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Maltese Falcon. And it is a world that uh, sort of does two things. It combines uh, sort of pulp adventure with sort of noir intrigue. Uh, but it is also a world that explores the idea of arcane magic, which sort of follow scientific principles by D&D rules, what if we embrace the idea of that being like a science and having nations that have been founded using magic as a tool? And so it sort of takes a slightly more realistic, if you will, view to the way that arcane magic could be incorporated into a civilization. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the first thing. It's a world that uses what we say called wide magic as you know, opposed to high magic. It's mm-hmm. widespread, but not extremely powerful. Uh, and it is a world that, again, encompasses a wide range of styles of play, but focusing both on sort of high action, over-the-top swashbuckling pulp adventure, uh, but also sort of noir intrigue where stories don't always end well and things can be gritty and dark. Um and that's sort of the most critical things. A world of magic, a world of swashbuckling and adventure, a world of intrigue. Okay. Um, and, and and we sort of muddled through all kinds of other stuff, right? Like talking about the, mm-hmm. the war and the war forged and, and the Kalashtar and, and, and all that. And that all kind of gets mixed in there as well. And, and that certainly comes back to all those things are sort of part of where we try to go with the world. Where, as I say, both something that in some ways uses all the principles of D&D but tries to sort of say this feels like a logical way these things could impact a world. So we have the last war and part of the point of the last war is that war fought with magic and from that you get the war forged and from that you get uh, the use of airships and you have a catastrophe that is you know even grander than nuclear devastation. Mm. Uh, You also have the dragon marked houses uh, which are forces that essentially can parallel sort of modern mega corporations, but again, entirely based on magical principles. And so it is a world where we are exploring various things that are very relevant to us in our modern lives, but again, through a fantasy lens. Mm-hmm. So uh, Eberron came from the, the era of third edition um, and mm-hmm. the, the big setting search contest that you were the, the grand champion of and all that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in third edition, there, were, uh, there was a, a, a decent-sized library of Eberron products that people could pull from. In fourth edition, there were, what, two Two, a player's guide and a campaign guide. A campaign guide, guide. Uh-huh. uh huh. And so in fifth edition, we get the Wayfinder's Guide. What is the Wayfinder's Guide? Explain this product to us. Well, the point is, it's not 
supposed to be there's there's a lot of things that the wayfinder's guide isn't the wayfinder's guide is not supposed to be a substitute for any of the previous campaign guides uh essentially our sort of approach here is that eberron has been unlocked for the dm's guild and the wayfinder's guide is simply supposed to give you enough of insight into the world that whether you know it or have never encountered it before, you get an idea of what it's about and you could potentially just do your best to dive in and start an adventure in Sharn, even if you don't know everything about the world. Uh, so it is not a comprehensive, let's give you every detail about history, about the world, about everything, because if you want those, you can still get those. Getting the third or fourth edition campaign guides on... Uh, on the DMs Guild. Mm -hmm. You know, all of those things are available. And so what we wanted was something that both gave you mechanically the things you absolutely need. Uh, the races, the dragon marks, you know, these are things that define an Eberron story. And then from a story perspective, what makes Eberron characters different? Uh, you know, what you'll find is there's a lot of story hooks in it. So rather than a traditional campaign source book where it's going to take a nation and tell you all about, let's talk about all its cities, let's talk about all its power groups, uh, things like that. What the Wayfinder's Guide really does is say, okay, here's Ondere, here's a very short description of what the nation of Ondere is about, and here's what does it mean to you if your character is from Ondere? How is that interesting? What are some stories? Likewise with the religions. We don't go into a lot of depth, but what we do do is concretely say, if you are a follower of this religion, how does that affect how you're supposed to live your life? And so again... The whole point is if Eberron does well, you know, if there is a good response to it in the DMs Guild, then there's a good chance that Wizards will go ahead and make a full official print source book. That won't just be the, the Wayfinder's Guide printed out because that's not what the Wayfinder's Guide is. Uh, so again, the Wayfinder's Guide is giving you insight into the world for people who know nothing about it. And then even for people who do, it's all sorts of just story hooks and th things that you can use right away to just dive in and uh, make some characters and start an adventure. Yeah, there's there's a there were a lot of things uh, going through Wayfinder's Guide that um, I, I'm certain have been there since the beginning that I must have just glossed over in the you know in this finding the signal in the noise sort of thing, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Cause just because there was so much. And there's so many, like, neat little elements that I never even, like, latched onto uh, before that I discovered when I was looking at way the Wayfinder's Guide because it sort of boils everything down to its core. Well, that's exactly, I mean, that's a really good way of, of looking at it and what we were trying to do is because a source book has to cover so much when you're covering everything in the world, you know, one thing that has gotten lost a lot in some of the other books is that idea of like the last war and what impact has this had on your character personally because it's such a big event that it should have had some kind of impact. And so with the Wayfinder's Guide, you know, we don't get into the deep history of Eberron. We don't really talk about, well, what happened a thousand years ago, but we talk about what happened two years ago and really how you can think about that and use it as part of, of an immediate story. Mm -hmm. And, oh, go ahead. Oh, and I was going to say, I mean, one of the things too about the Wayfinder's Guide is it's very much designed 
for both player and game master. So there's nothing in it that a player really can't know. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, there's a lot of things that are kind of glossed over because it's intended that there's nothing here you can't know about. And mm -hmm. so in talking about the the terrible evils in the world and things like that, we don't go too deep into them because we want this to be all stuff that, that players can read with no fear of spoiling the story. Yeah, we even noted in our, in our review that a lot of the elements of the Wayfinder's Guide were set up to fit nicely on a single page so mm -hmm. that as a DM, I could very easily say, oh, you're from Ondera. Let me print you that page. Here it is. Here's a primer. You're good to go. And that was exactly intentional is for that, that very reason that with the Dragon Marked Houses, with the Nations, I really wanted someone to be able to do exactly that. That's great. Um, so imagine for a second, that I don't have a shelf in my game room full of older Eberron books, uh, mm -hmm. and I've picked up the, the Wayfinder's Guide, uh, what else do you suggest that I look at uh, in order to, if I want to be a DM in, in mm -hmm. Eberron? Because the Wayfinder's Guide doesn't really get me there, right? That's right. So the point is that the Wayfinder's Guide, again, gives you enough to get started, but you'd have to fill in blanks. You'd have to say, well, they told me that there was this secret society, and I'll add some details to that. You know, And you might not match canon, but you could dive in. What it does have is an appendix that uh, lists all the canon sources that are available, uh, both on the uh, DMs Guild and through things like Amazon for the novels and things like that. Because part of the thing about what you need is the big question is, well, what are you trying to do? If you're going to run an adventure in Sharn, the Sharn City of, source, of Towers source book is fantastic. And intentionally, the... Uh, the Sharn section of the Wayfinder's Guide doesn't just regurgitate what's in there because that book is out and it's great. If you want to do stuff, you know, in Zendrick, then pick up Secrets of Zendrick. And so the main thing is that the mechanics of those books aren't going to be exactly correct. But in some cases, well, if it says they're zombies, well, just grab zombies from the, the Monster Manual. You know, the story the flavor of those books is all still relevant. Mm. And so that's, as I said, there's an appendix that goes through each of those main books that's out there and sort of says, this is what this one contains uh, so that you can decide. It's also the case that now that uh, Eberron is open to the DMs Guild, uh, there are a number of authors who have already put out uh, stuff. Uh, I'm working on another book with Rudy Rutenberg that is going to add various things like Sybaris Dragon Marks and mm -hmm. uh, you know various things that didn't fit into the Wayfinder's Guide. Uh, and I certainly have other things. I'm looking forward to finally writing something about the planes, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so as I said, it's that sort of combination of you can still draw on all the classic books that are available on the uh, DMs Guild and the appendix of the Wayfinder's Guide will help you figure out which ones you might want. Or you can look at the new things that people are coming up with. So you don't have so, a suggestion of what, if I need one more book to run my Eberron campaign, which one should I pick up? Not really, because like I said, it depends <laughs> what you want. Okay. I, I really... Uh, I will say that the two things that come to my mind, I really like the Shrine City of Towers source book. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that, again, mechanics aside, 
it is a really interesting and engaging source book that really gives a sort of deeper view of a city than you get in a whole lot of uh, city source books. And it's my feeling that Sharn itself, there's so many stories you can tell in it that, you know, you could have an entire campaign that just runs through Sharn. Uh, so the Sharn City of Towers source book is certainly one that I'm just like, there is just no, you know, nothing, no downside to this unless you don't want to tell your story in Sharn. Sure. Uh, frankly, either the 3.5 or 4th edition campaign guide is a good resource for a game master because the Wayfinder's Guide doesn't tell you about all the villain groups and all the secret plots. Either one of those books will. And really, at that point, it's just your question as to which Where do you, go from you there? personally have a preference to. The, uh, the fourth edition book consolidates information from a lot of third edition books, uh, but it's also written you know, very much with a lot of sort of fourth edition skill things and monster mm-hmm. stats scattered around. Um, it has the advantage that it's written purely for the game master, whereas the 3.5 campaign setting book is sort of split between some of it is player focused and some of it is GM only. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I said, I feel either one of those books gives you a stronger grounding into the basic elements of the world. Sharn City of Towers is a very strong, uh, if you want to run adventures in Sharn, there's just tons of stuff. You know, it goes into vastly more detail uh, than we could possibly do in the Wayfinder's Guide. Okay. So one of the things that's largely been discussed online by, by folks from Wizards like Mike Merles and whatever is that uh, the Wayfinder's Guide, as it's been published, isn't really a finished product. Like there's things missing from it that they're hoping to add later. Um, what do you see as still being missing from the Wayfinder's Guide? Well, I think that it's, it's, that's been blown a little out of proportion. Uh, simply because the point of that is it was always our intention that the mechanical elements would be something that we would... uh, Because the whole thing of this is this was a book that was largely written by me at my house and working with Rudy on mechanics. And so this book was really written by the two of us. So in some ways it looks like, oh, this is a big standard wizard's book. But it's not. This wasn't done with hundreds of playtesters or, you know, all of the resources that you get in something. You know, some people have said, uh, have compared it to, like, the player's handbook. And it's like, no, this is a smaller, you know, a thing, uh, a smaller thing by a smaller team. Mm -hmm. And so part of the point of that is we want feedback uh, you know, we know that the the mechanics may may not be perfect. And so mechanics have been released in Unearthed Arcana. And so it's not that we're just like, oh, we have no idea. We're just throwing them out there. But it's saying that we want to see how people respond to these, what people find when they use them, and that we will change and update it mm-hmm. in response to that. Um, so again, it's not like, oh, we th- we're just totally, we have no idea it's that we are open to dealing with feedback and to improving it, if that makes sense. Beyond that, uh, the only part of it that is that playtest formula is the races and the dragon marks, which are a small fraction. This is a 170-page book, 
and we're talking about 20 to 30 pages of it. So it's not like, oh, I don't know if my Sharn section makes sense or if this table about attachments to the war makes sense. Um, so again, like I said, I just feel like some people presented it like we're just throwing this out there with no, uh, that it's completely wide open. And we're like, no, no, we're going to continue to improve it. Now, the big thing that I will say, in my opinion, it is sort of missing uh, is the artificer. I was going to ask, um, okay. <laughs> so the artificer is the thing that, to me, that's the one sort of mechanical part of Eberron uh, that, you know, was something we designed for Eberron in the first place that really does, in some ways, reflect the world, uh, and that basically... Wizards has already been working on a version of the Artificer through Unearthed Arcana, and it was sort of was on a sort of separate design track, uh, you know, where it has already been going through rounds uh, at Wizards, whereas, again, these other things are things that Rudy and I just sort of, you know, did ourselves. Um, and so it is something you will see a revised version of the Artificer in Unearthed Arcana that is taking into account all the feedback that people have given uh, on the last version and our own takes on that. Um, and when that goes through another round, that will certainly be incorporated into okay. um, uh, into the Wayfinder's Guide. So, but you, again, so you expect the Artificer to show up in Wayfinder's Guide in the future, not in some other product? It will definitely in, be included in the Wayfinder's Guide. Uh, it may be included. You know, again, so the gross. whole point is I think if there is an official Wizards book, it's going to be something totally different. It's not just they're going to take the Wayfinder's Guide and print it. Uh, as I said, Mike Merles has said that he wants to put the Artificer in the Wayfinder's Guide. And okay. so, and I want it to be in there. Well, there you go. Uh, so I certainly think, you know, that's the main thing that I'm like, yeah, that will be added as soon as we have a version we can add. Mm -hmm. um, and again, things like the races and dragon marks will be uh, improved and refined, you know, based on feedback. Mm -hmm. uh, but like I said, it's it's not like, you know, and part of it is because things like the Warforged in particular, there's a lot of sort of different ways you can do them and different sort of approaches. Mm. And and so we went, you know, we tried one thing, but we'll see, you know, we may very well change direction on that based on feedback. You think such. we'll see small additions? Like there's only, what, three uh, Warforged components, you, uh, you know, the those kinds of things. Are we going to see more of those sort of added on or... I think that's more likely to be separate products, okay. especially, again, already there's a product out there that I think added like 12 new Warforged okay. components and so such. And of course, you know, that's not me. Uh, but the whole point to me is, as I said, the Wayfinder's Guide isn't supposed to be an absolute complete source book. Okay. It's supposed to be an introduction. And so what was important to me is saying this is what a war, you know, this is the concept of a Warforged component. Mm. This is the concept of a Dragonmark focus item, not this is a complete list of all the ones that could be out there. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, who can say? We might, I might throw some more in, in there. Uh, but as I said, that's, that isn't the point of what the guide is supposed to be. Sure. Uh, speaking of other things that, that aren't, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this is a, a depiction of an, and a version of Eberron that does not have psionics. And yet, that is true. psionics is a fairly major component of one of the major storylines of Eberron. Um, 
if, say, Wizards were to publish some psionic rules in another product down the road, does that mean the Kalashtar need to be revised or give a variant version that's psionic? Or how do you handle that, do you think? I Well, see, there's a couple different possibilities with that. Uh, you know, one of the things is that I would hope that if an official Eberron, you know, like hardcover comes out, that there's always the chance that by the time that is released that they will have worked out psionics. And in that case, the Kalashtars, they appear in that, could take that into account and work with that. Uh, in making the Kalashtar for the Wayfinder's Guide, the goal was to make something that had psionic flavor and that could be, you know, having the telepathic ability. And the point is it doesn't have something like natural psi points, but it has, uh, you know, resistance to mental effects. It has, you know, it has a number of things that reflect the core idea mm-hmm. of the Kalashtar. And to some degree, you know, D&D doesn't really want races that are completely pigeonholed into being one class. And so while we could throw in some form of, you know, like natural psi points, uh, if the new psionic system uses that. Uh, at the same time, the question is if there's a better way, you know, if, again, the Kalistar just through the stats that they possess could be good at those classes without having to actually have something that is only useful to someone who is one of those classes. Because a Kalistar should be able to be a good monk or a good cleric. Mm. Or, you know, those are also perfectly valid paths for a Kalashtar to follow. Um, so certainly in choosing to put them in in the first place to the Wayfinder's Guide, it was that idea of saying you can still be a Kalashtar, even though psionics are a very important part of their culture, you can play that Kalashtar monk. Um, and as I said, whether we would change them you know, which is possible. That's the whole point, that, that the races as they we have put them out there are basically, this is a first pass at them. We'll see how they work. Um, so the one possibility is the Kalashar would be changed for psionics. Another possibility would be a variant, mm-hmm. uh, the same way you get variant tieflings or variant humans. And I think that would be the simplest approach, would just be to say, here is a variant that is the psionic Kalashar. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's probably the direction I would lean towards. Okay. Uh, and since you brought up, um, well, I guess I brought up races with the mm-hmm. Kalashtar, mm-hmm. right? Um, sure. let's talk dragon marks because mm-hmm. historically they have been a progression of feats mm-hmm. and now they're not. So part of the point of that is that the fact that they were feats was an artifact of the system as opposed to entirely something that necessarily fits the idea of dragon marks. One of the things is in third edition, every character got a feat at first level. Mm -hmm. So everyone could have a dragon mark right away. And that's part of the point is the idea that a dragon mark, dragon marks are generally supposed to manifest in adolescence. And so the idea is generally a dragon mark is something that is part of your history. Um, and so first you have the element that most characters can't have feats. Only a variant human can actually have a feat at first level. So if they were feats, you'd have to wait till fourth level to get one. Second, for that same reason, feat chains 
don't work very well mm-hmm. in uh, fifth edition. So it was always the case feats didn't really make sense. Tying them purely to backgrounds didn't really make sense because backgrounds don't carry mechanical sort of weight. At least not that much. Uh, right. Uh, and at the same time, we considered, but ultimately decided that we didn't want to add like a completely additional element, like say every character gets a feat in Eberron, you know, mm-hmm. and we, we considered that we decided against it. So the thing about making dragon marks part of race, uh, is that it allows everyone to have it at first level. And because of the interaction between race and, uh, background, you can say, well, is your story that you, you know, by taking a dragon mark in the noble background, I say, well, I'm part of my, you know, the ruling family of my house. If you take the guild artisan background, well, I'm just a working stiff with my dragon mark. You know, I'm in the house, but I'm, I'm no one special. And you take the foundling or the criminal uh, background and you're either an excoriate or, excuse me, I meant the urchin. You know, you're either an excoriate or a foundling who has no ties to the house at all, even though you have the dragon mark. So what I like is that gives you a lot of room to develop your unique dragon marked story. Now, part of this, what this doesn't allow is the idea of, okay, but I want to develop a dragon mark at fourth level. And there's a couple different things about that. First, to me, story-wise, the whole idea is people generally develop dragon marks in adolescence. They come in response to stress. Have you just never had stress? You know, the right kind of stress till them. Second, because the core dragon mark, the least dragon mark, is something that half of heirs develop, you developing one is not that exciting. Uh, whereas developing an aberrant mark or a sybaris mark is exciting. Mm. And that's a story. And so I don't feel it's necessary to have people develop the least marks as long as they can develop aberrant marks or sybaris marks because those are things, either one, they're going to change the direction of your story and are going to, you know, a sybaris mark, the house is going to care. Whereas if you just develop the least mark, that's not that big a deal, you know, to the house. Right. And, and um, the sybaris mark is something that if people are interested in knowing more about, you said there's a product you're working on for that. Yeah. So, so I will say that uh, Rudy Rutenberg, who worked with me on the Wayfinder's Guide, and I are working on a product that hopefully will come out next month. Uh, it's the Morgraves Miscellany, uh, and that will include rules both for Sybaris marks, for greater aberrant dragon marks, and we are going to actually present a system that does let you develop least marks later in life okay and i was gonna uh, so, that's yeah. another thing i was gonna actually ask about is that there used to be more levels of dragon marks that you, right. they could develop so you're gonna add that in, in this other product well we're adding the ability for you to develop you know the so to speak the least mark we basically we've pulled out is the lesser right. you know you have the least which is having the dragon mark in the first place you have the greater which is having a more powerful dragon mark and you have the idea of the sybaris mark which is as far as it goes uh, the reason we dropped out the lesser is, again, because feet chains aren't really a thing. Right. And what I presented, the whole idea to me is from a story standpoint, don't be limited with the dragon mark to just the powers that are granted by the race or the feet. That part of the idea is if I'm a cleric who has the mark of healing, I may say that my healing abilities are from the mark. Not just, not actually from being a cleric. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm a sorcerer, I could say that my lightning powers come from my mark of storms. And so that's sort of what we're saying is don't be too bogged down by the precise split of three sizes of mark. Uh, if you tie your mark in some way to your character abilities, mm-hmm. then as your abilities grow, you can say my mark is growing with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just have the greater mark as a, you know, at this point, uh, if you take this feat, it is granting right. pretty significant uh, sort of abilities. Okay. Um, but like I say, the Morgrave Miscellany will present a number of different uh, sort of uh, approaches, including, again, an alternate approach you can take with Dragon Marks uh, and uh, Cypress and Greater Aberrant Marks. And you're hoping to have that out September, October? September, October, for sure. Great. Uh, so if anybody wants to to check out any other sort of anything Eberron, right? Their, their curiosity's <laughs> been piqued. Uh, where do you suggest they go? Uh, well, definitely to DMs Guild. Uh, so on the DMs Guild, you can not only see uh, things that, that, you know, people are throwing out all kinds of ideas now because anyone can write stuff for Eberron. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also all the classic material is there. You know, uh, if you go to the DMs Guild, you can get any of the third edition or fourth edition books. Um, I have a guide to the novels in the Wayfinder's Guide, and most of those are at least available as ebooks or audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Um, and although, although novels historically in Ebron are not canon, right? Novels are not canon, so but this is a big point. There's interesting flavor. Read. Right, that's the point. You don't need to read the novels. You're not somehow missing something. And not only are you not missing something, the books do not, you know, take the events of the novels into account. Uh, But the idea of the novels is these are sources of ideas. These are Eberron stories that could happen, um, but they're not required reading. Uh, I also, of course, my website is keith-baker.com. Uh, and I post a couple of Eberron-related articles a month. I ask, answer questions. Uh, and there's also a Facebook group that's about a 1,000 people that's Eberron Enthusiasts is the one that has sort of the most members and the most traffic. Uh, so that's another thing you can check out. Very good. Uh, so it, it's also true that mm-hmm. Keith Baker is involved in non-Eberron st- sort of gaming sort of things, right? I, I happened to be uh, walking through a Barnes & Noble recently and ran mm-hmm. into some games that were not Eberron with Keith Baker's name on them. So if if listeners are intrigued by, by your design and your ideas and they want to see mm-hmm. more things from you, uh, where should they look to find out about Keith Baker? Well, there's a bunch of things. You know, obviously there's KeithBaker.com. Uh, but also recently, over the last couple of years, I've started a game company of my own called Together Studios, and that is inconveniently T-W-O together, so together. Um, and togetherstudios.com uh, covers the three games we have produced, which includes a sort of interesting classic card game called Illimat, uh, a wacky storytelling game called Action Cats, but also a role-playing game called Phoenix Dawn Command. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different style of role-playing game. And one of the things I'll just say on that is that it's a game in which death is how your character improves. Um, I'm also well known for my card game Gloom is probably the the biggest thing, uh, you know, I've done sort of aside from Eberron and those games. Um, but yeah, all of those are things you can check out. And I'm on Twitter as HellCowKeith. 
Very good. Well, thank you very much for coming on. It's always fun to chat. Thank you so much for having me. I really hope people enjoy the Wayfinder's Guide and Eberron in the future. And that's the end of the episode. We'd like to say thank you to our sponsors, Date Envy and Noble Knight, and to our guests. Jeremiah, where can folks find you? Uh, I have a website, jeremiahmccoy.com, and I'm Technoir on Twitter, and I have a YouTube channel and various other sundries. Awesome. Quinn? Uh, uh, Thoughtcrimegames.net is where I'm writing ghosts. I also uh, uh, write for uh, dailymtg.com uh, about magic stuff, so uh, when we talk about Ravnica, I'll be back. Hopefully. And um, uh, yeah, and uh, QH underscore uh, Murphy on Twitter. There you go. Awesome. Uh, if you want to get a hold of the show, you can email the show at For example, if you wanted to reach out and say, hey, I really enjoyed this review, but I want you to come back when the whole thing's done, even if it's like a year or more from now, and, and do a review when it's finished, uh, and then you can talk about the differences, that would be an email address that you could do that. show at gmail.com. You can also tweet at me. Uh, I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. Tracy is at Sarah Dark Magic. That's Sarah with an H. Uh, and you can tweet the show at The Tome Show as well. And that's episode 307, where we fought dinosaurs from the top of an impossible tower as it was collapsing and flew away in the sunset of an airship in this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, you don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D Unless you want to, like me You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D Unless you want to, like me You don't think we fancy, let me teach you about class Priest, fighter, road, cats, a kick your ass You don't think we street, look at this table full of ice You don't think we hard, just touch my dice You don't think we can get it at the birds and the bees in the suits, but a thief in the shoes. My character shoots, cause they fold to the brim. With maxed out sass, out to open my DM. He think he in charge, we don't worry about him. Simple when he out to get us, be like Jack the Swim. Master player, traitor, master creator. Look at me, master NPC generator. Just cause she a master doesn't mean you have to hate her. Got a boy, I don't need to be no master later. I don't care if over there your character is dying, cause it's just like baseball. There's no crying. You wanna join in? Now you start realizing we're the cool, cool nerds. Call me Neil deGrasse Tyson. D to the R to the A, and S, D and D. The dungeon master sets up a scenario, then he or she asks, where would you like to go? We talk as a group, then decide together. There's no winning, yo. We could play forever. Stay right there, let me answer your questions. I'll clear up all your misconceptions. Stay right there, let me answer your questions. I'll clear up all your misconceptions. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D unless you want to. You don't dress up to play D and You don't dress up to play D and You don't dress up to play D and unless you want to, like me. You don't dress up to play D and You don't dress up to play D and You don't dress up to play D and unless you want to, like me. You don't dress up to play D and You don't dress up to play D and You don't dress up to play D and unless you want to. Like me.
I'm on the wall.